Hosea 7, Hosea 7. Lesson number 10, we're hitting the halfway mark uh, here um, in our, in our uh, study. Again, just to refresh your, your memory, it's been a few weeks, but the book of Hosea, we, we've mentioned, is divided into two main parts, uh, and that sort of major division in the book is between uh, chapters 3 and chapter 4. Uh, in chapters 1 to 3, we have this sort of real-life drama involving Hosea and his marriage to Gomer, as well as, the, um, as well as their children. And then beginning in chapter 4, we, we begin sort of from chapter 4 to the end of the book. It's sort of a, a, a series or an anthology of Hosea's prophecies and preaching that demonstrate God's long-suffering, uh, God's love for His covenant people. And of course, to more fully understand that reality and the depths of God's love, we have to first understand the depths of, of Israel's sin. And so that's mainly what we've been talking about uh, for the last uh, several weeks. Uh, chapters 4 and chapters 5, the Lord indicts His people and sentences uh, His people as He portrays Himself uh, as, a, uh, as, as sort of a prosecuting attorney, uh, bringing charges uh, also setting himself up or portraying himself as the judge and also the jury. So he is the one who is sort of systematically bringing these charges against Israel, uh, the ten tribes in the north, uh, and then laying out the evidence and then announcing the verdict. And so what we're, what we're seeing in these chapters, it's as if uh, it's sort of a courtroom scene and the Lord is bringing exhibit one, exhibit two, exhibit three. So he's He's, he's bringing the charges, but then he's laying out the evidence, which is irrefutable uh, to sort of prove, prove the point, and then at the same time serving as the judge who examines all of that. So it's like he's, it's as if like he's bringing the charges, laying out the evidence, and then he's bringing the, the sentencing. And then what we saw uh, last time in chapter 6 is that he's also the one who examines any professions uh, of repentance, and so you might say he serves as the parole board uh, because Israel in those first three chapters, uh, first three verses of chapter six, uh, when we looked at that, it seems as if Israel is is finally humble, finally broken, finally repentant. But based on what comes following that, the verses four and beyond in chapter six, uh, you get the idea that this is they're they're professing repentance, they're saying these things. But the Lord is sort of piercing through that, examining the genuineness of that, and then finding it to be wanting, finding it to be lacking. Um, and so we spent some time at the end of our last, uh, last session together looking at the nature of true repentance, sort of just talking about repentance and what is true repentance, what is false repentance. Uh, we said that repentance is not worldly sorrow. It's not pouting. It's not... It's not some form of, of self-atonement where you sort of pay, for, pay yourself for what you did, attempting to kind of cancel out the bad. And so it's not, it's not a penance. Um, it's, it's not simply a confession, although confession is a part of repentance. But some people confess, and then that's where it stops, right? So they, they verbalize what they've done, but then there's no real heart transformation. It's not a, a partial confession, so it's people confess sometimes uh, a part of what they did. So they, they confess some things, but they uh, don't confess everything that's involved. And we made the statement that when uh, a person is truly repentant 
they tell you more than what you already know. Right. So in other words, they're not sitting back and saying, what will. Uh, so what do you know? You know, it's like it'd be like, I mean, I think of, of you and you're you're uh, at your job. If you caught an employee, you know, doing something and you go in and you're talking to them and you, you know what they've done and all they're willing to tell you is what you know. But when a person's really repentant, they tell you more than that. They're like, well, I know you saw me do this, but honestly, I actually have been doing that for a long time or I did that plus this. So that's just one of those things you look for, uh, I think, if you're trying to assess your own repentance or even someone else that you're uh, maybe dealing with. But, so it's not a partial confession. It's certainly not motivated by selfish uh, ends. Uh, so there's not, some, there, there's not this motivation that you're going to get something. So if I, if I repent or if I do this, then I'm going to get some kind of payback, some kind of reward because of that confession. And we said, finally, it's not damage control. So it's not focused on just saving face um, or, or minimizing your losses, right? It, it has to do with restoration. Uh, so we, we've made this point time and time again, but sin against the Lord is very personal. It's not just about violating a standard or a code of conduct. It's about offending a person. It's offending the Lord personally and so when we repent, repentance is not just ad- admitting an infraction, right? It's not just about admitting, oh, I, I'm sorry, I, I broke that rule. It's about what we've done in the relation- to hurt the relationship. And so if a person is truly repentant, they're not just trying to save face. They're, they're trying to, to regain that relationship back there. They, they want to they be right with that, with that person. So it does involve earnestness, uh, an earnestness that does not fade away. It is a person is eager to clear themselves. They, they, they hate their sin um, uh, more than they hate the consequences of their sin. Uh, they have a fear of the Lord that is driving all of that, not just a fear that others may discover uh, and find out what they've been doing. Uh, they desire uh, and they're concerned about restoration rather than a desire to let bygones be bygones. And they have a desire for justice uh, rather than this driving desire to get out from under the consequences. And so they can, they can admit what they've done and they're, they're okay. I'm going to say they're, oh, it sounds not like they're flippant, but I'm saying they're okay with the consequences. Because they not only understand the mercy of God, they do understand the fact that God is righteous and just and holy. And if, and if God chooses to bring consequences, then they, they can't complain, right, about that. That's what David basically says in Psalm 51. He, he says God is righteous and God is just to basically do whatever he chooses to do. Um, thankfully, God uh, doesn't always bring the full weight, right, of the consequences. And we, we do experience the mercy of God in many ways, but we can take advantage of that, right? And we can, we can pre- become presumptuous, and forget that God has the right to bring whatever consequence He chooses to bring. So again, if a person's truly repentant, you're going to see that willingness to accept whatever consequences do come. So this was the uh, Westminster Confession, this is our shorter catechism. This was their definition of repentance. It is a saving grace whereby a sinner out of a true sense of sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ does with grief and hatred of his sin turn from it to God with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. So it's not just, again, they're thinking about, 
down the road. They're thinking about, I want to be right with God and I want to start living right. A, a, a new obedience. They want, to, they want this repentance and this faith in the Lord to continue. They don't, they want, they don't want it to be something that is just short, short-lived. So <clears throat> the heart of true repentance is not simply <clears throat> turning from, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> turning from sin uh, and toward God, but coming back to God with a broken spirit and a contrite heart. Uh, Matt Erbaugh writes this. He says, We must also be aware of one of the biggest hindrances to obtaining a broken heart, our neglect of the relational aspect of sinning. By this, I mean that we can view sin as a failure of performance rather than a failure of intimacy. The only grief we experience is disappointment in our inability to do what is right and not that we have despised the living God. When we sin, he says, we play the part of an adulterer who looks for satisfaction in another rather than the only God who can satisfy. That is why David said to the Lord, against you and you only have I sinned. David rightly saw his failures in terms of relationship, and as a result, his heart was grieved, as it can be only, as it can be only when we have sinned against the one that we love so much. So we, we talked about repentance, obviously a, a, a key, um, you know, something we need to have a, a, a sound understanding of and, and, and learn, not, not just know it, but, but practice it in our, in our lives. And then we ended chapter 6 with this last line. If you're, if you're there in, in, the, in your Bibles, just notice at the end of chapter 6, this final little phrase, and we, connect, we connected this line to the first line of chapter 7. So we have these two things together. When I restore the fortunes of my people, when I would heal Israel. So this is, we just, we just stated that this, this is not an if statement, but a when statement. This will happen, uh, not yet, but in the future, that Israel will return to the Lord, but they will not return to God until he turns them. So there is, we have this, this, um, this clear responsibility for the people to repent and to turn and to return. Yet we know from this and this book and other places in the scriptures that they will not repent unless the Lord gives them a kickstart. Right. So uh, and we looked at that reality that, you know, it's this it's this sort of um, it's like the heart of a true believer knows they need to repent, but also grasp the. The, the idea that the Lord has to grant them repentance. It's like, it's this, it's just this sort of kind of odd balance of these two truths that they know what God requires of them in and of themselves they can't do, which actually drives them to greater dependency on the Lord, but that also fuels a greater determination to repent. It's like it, the, all of those things are working together. We saw this in Jeremiah 31, uh, verses 18 and 19. We saw it in Lamentations 5, 21. Uh, There it says, Restore us to you, O Lord, that we may be restored. So it's that, again, those those twin truths, that they need to be restored, but before they can do that, the Lord must restore them to him. So it's, it's just saying that we need God's help to turn back to him. Uh, and, and, and we'll never return to God until he turns us. And even we, we can't even get repentance right without God's help and God's grace.
So again, major problem for Israel. Uh, to begin with, they didn't see a need for it, right? I mean, they didn't really grasp the need for them to repent. But even at times when you, you kind of thought Israel's going to, they're going to repent. They're going to repent. There seemed to be this idea of their understanding of repentance was that when they get good and ready, they'll repent, right? It's like, we'll repent when we want to. But if you understand that God is the one that must initiate that, then you don't determine when that's going to happen, right? You don't say, I'm going to sin for a few months, and then in March, I'm going to repent. You don't do that because God is the one. You're at his mercy, right, for this thing to happen. So we have this, the twin wins, if you will, at the end of chapter 6, the beginning of chapter 7, that win time of divine intervention and restoration, which are in the distant future. But the Lord is going to continue through Hosea to expose the current realities of his rebellious people. Um, So we have here basically in chapter 7 more indictments, uh, more evidence, uh, more more atrocities. So let me just read it for us, and then we'll go back through, kind of walk through it a verse at a time. Uh, Hosea 7.1, When I would heal Israel, the iniquity of Ephraim is uncovered in the evil deeds of Samaria, for they deal falsely. The thief enters in, bandits raid outside. And they do not consider in their hearts that I remember all their wickedness. Now their deeds are all around them. They are before my face. With their wickedness, they make the king glad and the princess with their lies. They are all adulterers, like an oven heated by the baker who ceases to stir up the fire from the kneading of the dough until it is leavened. On the day of our king, the princess became sick With the heat of wine, he stretched out his hand with scoffers, for their hearts are like an oven as they approach their plotting. Their anger smolders all night, and in the morning it burns like a flaming fire. All of them are hot like an oven, and they consume their rulers. All their kings have fallen. None of them calls on me. Verse 8. Ephraim mixes himself with the nations. Ephraim has become a cake, not turned. Strangers devour his strength, yet he does not know it. Gray hairs also are sprinkled on him, yet he does not know it. Though the pride of Israel testifies against him, yet they have not returned to the Lord their God, nor have they sought him for all all of this. So Ephraim has become like a silly dove, without sense. They call to Egypt, they go to Assyria. When they go, I will spread my net over them. I will bring them down like the birds of the sky. I will chastise them in accordance with the proclamation to their assembly. Woe to them, for they have stayed for, strayed from me. Destruction is theirs, for they have rebelled against me. I would redeem them, but they speak lies against me. And they do not cry to me from their heart when they wail on their beds. For the sake of grain and new wine, they assemble themselves. They turn away from me. Although I trained and strengthened their arms, yet they devise evil against me. They turn, but not upward. They are like a deceitful bow. Their princess will fall by the sword because of the insolence of their tongue. This will be their derision in the land of Egypt. So let's walk through these verses and then we'll draw out a few few implications I just put this up here because I know some of you are looking at, at various translations. This is the, I just read from the New American Standard, so maybe we'll help you kind of track where we're going. Uh, but so a few implications when we get done. The main, the main implication is going to refer to the deceitfulness of sin. So there's some things about sin and the way in which sin works and operates in our lives 
and, and, and the effect of that on our hearts, uh, we're going to see some of the some principles. We'll come back to those at the end, end of the chapter. So let's just go, go through here. Verse 1 says, When I would heal Israel, uh, the iniquity, so we kind of pick up really with this phrase, the iniquity of Ephraim is uncovered, and the evil deeds of Samaria, for they deal falsely. The thief enters in, bandits raid outside. So he says here they are, they are doers of deceit. They, they deal falsely. Uh, this is something, as we said, these are not, when the Lord brings these charges against Israel, these are not things that have just happened once or twice. I mean, he's, these things are, are patterns. So they, they have a pattern of deception. They're, they're, you might say they're characterized by this. This is their, this is their pra- practice. So there's deception and deceit. There's rampant iniquity, excessive evil. Uh, we've seen other examples of that in previous chapters. Then he says there are thieves. So we've got thieves breaking in, taking whatever they want, right? We've got bandits outside uh, raiding. And so it's just this, it's, I think it's just, it's just this scene of chaos. Okay, it's just saying that they're, this, it's, it's crazy, okay? Like this, it's crazy out there, right? I mean, we see this sometimes, right? We just say that we, we get out there, we, we watch TV or we get out there in the workplace or whatever. It's just like, it's, it's crazy what's going on, right? And it's just this sort of a snapshot of, I mean, people characteristically are liars. They are deceivers. There are people taking what they want. There are people that are causing all kinds of upheaval. So it's, it's really, I think, just a sort of a picture of anarchy. Just There's anarchy all, all around and all across the board. Verse 2, he says, And they do not consider in their hearts that I remember all their wickedness. Now their deeds are all around them. They are before my face. So here's Hosea points out what you might say is the spiritual, uh, really a foolishness, or you might even say stupidity of the people. Their spiritual and theological um, uh, just uh, dullness because they're, they are... They're not saying in their hearts, or they're not, you might say, even say, they're not taking to heart, or they're not bringing to their mind um, that they should have been thinking about this, but they weren't. The question is, well, what? what? What is it that they should have been taking to heart or bringing to the forefront of their mind? And he says, the thing that they're not considering is the fact that God remembers all their wickedness, right? That he remembers, he remembers it all. And so they, they're deliberately turning their backs on that truth. And the Lord declares that their deeds are all around them, that they are literally before his face. It's like they're, so this, they're, they're in his presence. It's like the Lord's saying, they are, they're all, your sin is all around you. You know, again, it's just say, do you not see that? <laughs> your sin is all around you. And, and not only that, but the Lord is saying it is... It is literally right here. Like this is, I see it. I know it. I remember it. I, I know what's going on. So their, their sin should have been plain to them. It was certainly plain to, to the Lord because he is, is the omniscient God, right? So trying to hide anything from him is really futile. We've actually seen this mentioned in again in previous chapters this just it just it doesn't it doesn't make sense right it doesn't make sense that the people are doing what they're doing and living as if god doesn't know what they're doing okay 
But you could ask King David. Again, I mentioned Psalm 51. This was David's prayer of, of a sort of expressing his repentance after his own uh, season of, of, of sinning, of, of infidelity, as well as, as uh, murder and all of that. But he says in Psalm 51.1, Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Okay, so what David is saying is, I'm aware of my sin. In fact, it's, it's kind of like inescapably in my presence, right? I mean, I, I, every day I am aware of my sin. I am aware of my sinfulness. And then he says in verse 4, this is the verse we referenced earlier, against you, you only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that phrase alone tells us that David understood that what he did was, God was very aware of it. Okay, so this is, this is before God's face that David did these things. He says, so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. So there's, the, there's that reality that David is saying, in light of the fact that God knows everything and he, he sees everything, he is a just judge. He has all the facts that he needs, unlike a lot of judges, right? I mean, judges try to do that in most cases. They try to, they try to, to take into consideration all the evidence, but ju- human judges don't always know all of the evidence, right? So they, they, can, they can misjudge something because of that. But David's saying, Lord, you know everything, and because you're holy and righteous, that you are justified when you speak. You are blameless when you judge. Because why? Because you have all the information. <laughs> you have all the facts. There's nothing hidden. And so David accepts that. He just says, listen, whatever the Lord decides to do, I'll, I'm, I'm willing to accept that from him. But again, David's aware both of the fact that God sees his sin and the fact that David is aware of his own sin. So it's these sort of I, both of those things were not going on in, in the life of Israel at the time of Hosea. One, they did not see their own sin. Secondly, if they did acknowledge it, they didn't think that God knew about it, right? Uh, David also writes this in Psalm 32, verse 1, How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. You say, wait a minute, cover? I thought we were, were supposed to cover our sin? No, that, no, David's not covering his sin. The Lord covered it, right? Verse 2, How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent about my sin... My body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. So David's just saying, listen, blessed is the man whose sin is covered. Why is David's sin covered? Because David uncovered his sin. You see, so he, David acknowledges eventually because he says there's a period where he wasn't doing that, right? He wasn't acknowledging his sin. And when as long as he was not willing to acknowledge his sin, God wasn't willing to cover it. But when he uncovered his sin, God covered it. 
So it's like this, Proverbs 28, 13. He who conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and... What's the other word? Do you remember? Confesses and does what? Forsakes, right? So there we go. We have confession sort of sandwiched there with this what is really true repentance, which involves confession and forsaking. But he says that he who confesses and forsakes his transgressions will find compassion, right? So if you confess your sin and forsake your sin, you find compassion. If you cover your sin, even though God sees it, right? So it's not about God knowing it or not knowing it because God always knows it. It's about us admitting that reality, right? So we see our sin. We know God sees our sin. We cry out to God because we know that repentance requires Him to help us to do that. And when we do that, we find compassion. But when we cover and conceal and sweep under the rug, God says, you won't prosper. (laughs) That's not going anywhere, right? But that is what Israel was doing. Israel was both blind to what they were doing, and then even when they were at times aware of what they were doing, they wouldn't own up to it, and they wouldn't admit that God was aware of it, and they would not seek mercy. So it's pure folly for the people of Israel to think that God doesn't know or see, but that is what they were doing. Now, beginning in verse 3, this is back in Hosea 7, we, we learn more about Israel's ongoing mutiny and rebellion against the Lord. And down through verse 7, there's a special focus on the political scene as he mentions six times in these few verses, either the king, uh, princes, uh, or rulers, you might say judges in Israel. So there's a particular spotlight on them. And we, we've alluded before to the chaos that was so prevalent during these uh, really almost two centuries between the time when the kingdom divided in 931 B.C. and then the Assyrian ca- uh, captivity and invasion in 722 B.C. And so what we see in that, that time span, and you read about this in Kings, you read about it in Chronicles, is there's just this constant upheaval, the, 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 the political instability. Um, and so you have these political intrigues, you have all these crafty dealings where you have not just the people in power scheming and trying to maintain power, right, or to deal with or eliminate any threat to their power, what these verses tell us is that you also have the people involved in this, right? So the, the people are actually a part of this effort to see certain people come to power and then at other times to bring certain people down. And so you have fathers killing sons, you have sons rising up and killing fathers, and you have other people within the regime at times trying to rise up and to seize control. So he says in verse 3, he says, With their wickedness they make the king glad, and the princes with their lies. And so he's just saying that the people in general are they're, they're being hypocritical, but they're, they're flattering their rulers, uh, that the, the leaders of Israel are being led on by the people because the people are also guilty of sin. And so you have these leaders that are not doing right. You have the general population not doing right. And they're sort of uh, uh, flattering these leaders, but it's, it's, it's still what they want, right? I mean, they're tr- in the end, they're, everybody's trying to get what they want out of it. 
Verse 4 says this, They are all adulterers, like an, like an oven heated by the baker, who ceases to stir up the fire from the kneading of the dough until it is leavened. And so this is, this is fascinating, uh, just this imagery that's going on in these next few verses. But the baker here is pictured as not stoking the coals. And so he's sort of sitting back and waiting for things to develop. Or you might say this, he's, they're, 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 the people were constantly cooking up conspiracies, right? They were always thinking about conspiracies that would then lead to these coup attempts, these of trying to overthrow certain uh, leaders and, and powers so that the person that they wanted to be in power that would give them the things that they wanted, that, that, that that's where they were putting all of their energies. In fact, I mean, this becomes more clear as you move through the, the passage that this is what he's talking about. Verses 5 and 6... On the day of our king, the princess became sick with the heat of wine, and he stretched out his hand with scoffers, for their hearts are like an oven as they approach their plotting, or that word there could be translated as ambush. So even as they approach their ambush, their anger smolders all night. In the morning, it burns like a flaming fire. And so basically in verse 5, you have these kings and princesses, these princes par, par, sort of partying on, but the ambitious, these conspiracy bakers from verse 4, they, they are now getting up early to stoke the coals of insurrection. So it's just sort of this, uh, it's like in, in, one, in one moment, they're stirring things up, right, to, to kind of build up this insurrection, this, this, this coup. And then at other times, it's like once the wheels get going, what do they do? They just sort of sit back, right? So it's like at some points they're stoking the fire. <laughs> it's like to get it going. But then once the wheels start turning, then they, they step back like, I, I, don't, I don't know what's going on. I mean, yeah, did you hear about that? It's like they step in and they step out. Sometimes they're sitting back and the oven is just sort of going and they're not really doing anything actively to stir those things up. And then at other times they can't wait to strike. Right. And I mean, they are they literally all night long. It's just like the temperature in the oven is getting hotter, 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 hotter until they again, they they pull pull something to try to, again, make make this this these things happen for their benefit. Verse seven, all of them are, are hot like an oven and they consume. So here's they consume their rulers. All their kings have fallen. And so, again, it's just this. Just again, this, this ongoing cycle in Israel's history during this time where the people were in, involved in this. Sometimes you get the appearance that it's the leaders themselves that are doing this, but Hosea is just saying that the people of Israel are culpable for this as well, right? In fact, there's a, there, if you went back and you caught some of what was said about the priests back in previous chapters, you'd get the impression that at times the priests themselves were the ones directly involved with the putting a person in power and having a person knocked off or killed. They're even referred to as those who commit, commit murder themselves. So here are the people of Israel burning in their desire, engineering the coup and the downfall of the ruling regime. And again, these regimes, sometimes we're not talking about years. In some cases, it's hard to even put together the chronology of the kings during this time because sometimes it was weeks. <laughs> it's like they would have a leader, and then, and then within weeks and months, that guy was gone, right? 
So they have their plans, but categorically, none of them, at the end of verse 7, when he says none of them, I think it's sort of, it's a summary. It's wrapping in the people, it's wrapping in the priests, the rulers, the judges, the kings, the princes. He's just saying none of them, the conspirators, none of them call on God. So these, these cycles were so prevalent during Israel's history, but there was no loyalty to God. Ultimately, God is the true king, right? He is the true king. He is the caring shepherd. And God is simply saying, the people are stepping in and trying to do and create things that God himself is in charge of. I mean, God is the one that, right, he's the one that brings kings to power and brings kings down. And it's as if the people are stepping in and they're saying, no, we we can do that, right? We can bring to power who we want. And when we want somebody gone, we can eliminate them, right? But they're totally ignoring the king, right? Their king, their God. They're not in any way relying and trusting on him. So they have in, in, in every way, t- they've taken things into their own hands, okay? Uh, it, it, to connect to that, he goes on in verse 8 and says, Ephraim mixes himself, okay, we're not there. Ephraim mixes himself with the nations. Ephraim has become a cake not turned. Um, so this, this summarizes Israel's tendency to make alliances with certain other nations all in an effort to protect themselves from another enemy nation, right? So there were all these, uh, all this deal making that was that was going on at the time. The prophets had warned them about this time and time again. Uh, I think uh, several weeks ago we uh, had mentioned Isaiah thirty-one, but let me read that. Just the first few verses of that. Isaiah thirty-one one says, "Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help." And rely on horses and trust in chariots because they are many, and in horsemen because they are very strong, but they do not look to the Holy One of Israel, nor seek the Lord. Yet he also is wise and will bring disaster, and does not retract his words, but will arise against the house of evildoers and against the help of the workers of iniquity. Now the Egyptians are men and not God. And their horses are flesh and not spirit. So the Lord will stretch out his hand and he who helps will stumble and he who is helped will fall and all of them will come to an end together. Right. So the prophets just kept coming with this message. Don't don't turn to these foreign nations for help, thinking that they are somehow going to provide safety for you, because in the end, the ones that you turn to for help as well as the ones that turn to them for help are both coming down. So they mix themselves with the nations for protection primarily. But the sad irony is that God would mix them with the nations in judgment. So it's like they choose to mix themselves and say, let's go down, let's go over here to this, this, this group because they seem to be pretty strong stronger than this other thing. And so if we go there and we join with them, then we can be protected against this other nation. And he's saying, you mixed in with those nations. So when it comes time for judgment, guess what? You're going to be mixed in with them, right? So you're going to suffer at their hands. And in most cases, they actually were 
subjugated and, and, and actually came under the control and rule of those nations and mistreated by those nations, and then those nations were brought down. But uh, that judgment was, I said, all of those were wrapped up into that. And for that, they have become, I might say, half-baked. Uh, it's an interesting little sort of a description here. They're, they are... They are, you might say, indigestible. They are, they're raw on one side and cooked on the other. You know, so they, they took a, a, something and you, you put it on the, uh, in the oven and then you didn't flip it, right? So when you, when you pull it off, it's like the one, one part is, is oh, it may be overdone. The other part is, is inedible. So just, just saying this is, this is a, a repulsive thing. And because of that and because of their lack of true repentance... The consequences continue to come. Verse 9, strangers devour his strength, yet he does not know it. Gray hairs also are sprinkled on him, yet he does not know it. So strangers devour his strength. Well, how did that happen? Well, that, that happened because the people, when they joined themselves to the foreigners, right, to these nations, those nations sapped their strength, right, because it was, there was, it was really via this tribute money, Right? So they, they would make these alliances, but then they would have to pay for that. Right? They would have to pay for that protection. And so that, that tribute money was extracted by the nations around them, those, those powerful nations. And, the, and Israel became sort of the vassal nation. Right? So they were, they were having to cough up resources in order to be assured that they would have the protection that they longed for. And so you might say, this is protection money. Right? It's sort of like the mafia. Right. Where it's like, you know, we're going to look out for your family. But, you know, it's like if you want us to look out for you, then you've got to pay us for that. And then you get into this dynamic, this relationship where it's a it's a it's a form of slavery. Right. You're, you're afraid to not pay up. Right. Because then they might just leave you out there unprotected or they may themselves hurt you. Right. And again, that's I think the what's going on here, because those very nations that Israel would turn to for help, again, actually were the instruments that God used to chasten them in the end. So this was protection money. And he has gray hairs, which is a blessing, right? Anybody all have gray hairs? Yes, Bob. It's a blessing, but in this case, it doesn't sound very good, does it? Right? The gray hairs also sprinkled. They've sprinkled on him. So that's salt and pepper. So it is. Yet he does not know it. Right? And I think that is simply a reference to the fact that their their national lifespan was in its final days. Right? They did not realize how soon judgment was coming. Right? But it, it was ripe, right? And so it's, it's that idea of this thing is maturing. It is, it's coming to an end, right? God's been telling you this. He's been telling you this. He's been telling you this. The prophets have come, and you don't realize that you're on the, you're on the backside of that, right? It, judgment is, is imminent. And what's even more tragic, Israel did not recognize these evident realities, uh, their arrogance, he brings up in verse 10, this, this issue of pride comes back to haunt them. He says, through, though, though the pride of Israel testifies against him, yet they have not returned to the Lord their God, nor have they sought him for all of this. And the emphasis there is on that phrase, like, for all of this, they did, they did not repent. 
For all of this, they did not return to the Lord their God. For all of this, they did not seek the Lord. Right? They, they continued to turn their backs on the only true source of help, the Lord Himself. Verse 11, So Ephraim has become like a silly dove without sense. They call to Egypt. They go, they go to Assyria. When they go, I will spread my net over them. I will bring them down like the birds of the sky. I will chastise them in accordance with the proclamation, or it's actually the term over in Isaiah, who has believed our report. It's the idea of this, this report in accordance with the, the report or the proclamation to their assembly. So this proclamation at the end of verse 12, most likely referring to an announcement of, of impending judgment delivered by Hosea himself to the people of his day. And it's simply saying that in, this is coming in accordance with the, the report, the proclamation of Hosea. So these previous prophecies that Hosea had been bringing to the people, it's basically saying it's going to unfold the way, exactly the way Hosea said it was going to unfold. So he, he warned you, he brought you this report, but instead of listening to Hosea and his message, the people were listening to all the wrong reports. And for that, God will catch them in his net. I say he just describes them here as like a silly bird that just <laughs> thinks, it, it thinks it's free, right? It's just flying here and there, and then God just says, I'm going to drop the net on them. I am going to capture them. I'm going to, to chasten them. And then we come to the first woe in the book. There's another one we'll see in chapter 9, but he says in verse 13, Woe to them, for they have strayed from me. Destruction is theirs, for they have rebelled against me. I would redeem them, but they speak lies against me. So although the Lord was willing to ransom them from their apostasy and rebellion, they had a track record of, of, of defaming him. Of, of speaking against them. And they were culpable for cutting themselves off from their redeeming God, though God had been their redeemer from the very beginning when he delivered his chosen people from their slavery in Egypt and established them as a nation. And this is the burning question throughout Hosea. Will God redeem them? Will he ransom them? And will they turn back to him? And the answer is Yes. Yes, he will heal them. Yes, he will ransom them. Yes, they will repent, but again, not without God's initiative. This won't just be something they decide to do, but this will be a part of, of, of God's plan, and he will be the one that kickstarts that. And we'll see, see uh, how that unfolds uh, in more detail by the time we get to the end of, end of Hosea. So what we have in this verse is a statement about, it's about human responsibility, it is about the fact that we are responsible and culpable, the people were responsible and culpable to repent, but it's also a statement about the desire of the heart of God to redeem those in bondage. And at this point, he's saying God would redeem them, but they are culpable for their rebellion and their stubbornness and even their insincerity. He says, verse 14, "...and they do not cry to me from their heart." When they wail on their beds for, for the sake of grain and new wine, they assemble themselves and they turn away from me. So there's a lot of commotion going on, right? There's lots of tears. But 
But he says here, it's, it's hypocritical. It's not real. So the words are coming out, but they're not the evidence of what David talked about in Psalm 51. They're not the evidence of a contrite spirit. They're not the evidence of, of a broken heart. Again, this goes back to their shallow repentance that we looked at in chapter 6. And so the Lord, he's just saying the Lord has this inclination to redeem. He has this inclination to restore and to heal, but they're not responding to that in the right way. In fact, the Holman Christian Standard Bible says this. He says, They do not cry to me from their hearts. Rather, they wail on their beds. They slash themselves for grain and new wine. They turn away from me. How many of you have the ESV? Anybody ESV? They do not cry to me from the heart, but they wail upon their beds for grain and wine. They gash themselves and rebel against me. So it's pre- they're pretty desperate, right? And, and, and you may... You may remember the imagery in, in pre- previous chapters where the people are prostituting themselves to false, false gods and they think that the things that they're getting are coming from their lovers. It's, it's like the, the things that they have, they see as coming from their lovers and not from God. This, this whole, this whole um, um, reference here to gashing and slashing, it reminds you kind of takes you back to 1 Kings chapter 18 when the prophet Elijah confronts the prophets of, of Baal there at Mount, Mount Carmel when they cry out to Baal to answer them. I mean, Elijah's like, your, your God's not, he's not listening. He must, must be asleep, right? And so they, they, it says there in that text that they were, they were crying out to Baal, cutting themselves with swords and lances. Uh, it also brings to mind what we saw back in chapter 2, again, when they assume that their prostituting wa- that the, those prostituting wages, the goods that they were collecting, again, came from their lovers, but the Lord reminds them that anything that is good comes from Him. So the nation turns away from God, there at the end of the verse, or literally they turn aside or depart, and the word is against me. So it's, you would think it would say they turn from me, but actually they turn against. So it's just emphasizing the hostility at which the people did this, uh, t- turning away from him. And then he's just sort of a, a parental image here in verse 15. It's like they're, they're devising evil against their parent or the one who has loved them and taken care of them. Verse 15, although I trained and strengthened their arms, yet they devise evil against me. So God says, listen, I'm the one who has brought them up. I, I have brought them up from infancy uh, into into to, to being a toddler, to eventually being, going into adulthood. I am the one who has trained them. I am the one who has taught them. I'm the one that has walked with them and cared for them. But what was their response to all that? They devised evil against me. So it's just this idea of growing resistance over time. Right? And, and, and some of you have walked through that, even with your own, uh, old, if you have older kids, you've seen this. Some, we have people in the church that have walked through this where they have, their, they have children, right, and, and they care for them, and they love them, and they train them, and then, but then one day their, their, their children just, they, they rebel. They, they speak lies against them. They devise evil against them and turn on them, saying so you, you can relate. You can relate to what the Lord is, is describing here. It's the Lord saying, listen, I, I brought them out of the house of slavery. I established them as a nation. I have cared for them in every possible way, and it's like, I'm their parent, and yet they've gotten to adulthood, and now they're trashing me, <laughs> right? Verse 16, 
They turn, but not upward. They are like a deceitful bow. Their princess will fall by the sword because of the insolence of their tongue. This will be their derision in the land of Egypt. So they turn, but not to the Most High God. They are, they are a deceitful bow, a bow of deceit, a bow of treachery, a bow that will never allow its arrows to hit the target. So it's as if he's saying they shoot one way, but the arrow goes in a different direction because the bow is not true. And the bow is not true because they will not submit to their king, right? They will not submit themselves to their divine king, their divine parent, their divine general, right? The, the, the Lord of hosts, the king of armies, all of that. They would try to protect themselves in battle, but they would fall because of the curse of their tongue. Uh, and this, this will be their, their mocking, he says, their derision or their ridicule. Yes, they will fall in battle. Yes, they will be reduced to just a small group of people. But worse is the mockery that will come. The mockery that will come when the remnant is carted away into captivity. Not into Egypt, because we know that's historically, that's, it's actually into Assyria. But I think what he's saying is that their captivity would be Egyptian-like. Right? It, it would, their captivity would remind them of that dreadful experience in their history before God ransomed them. Right? It would take them back to those days of, of bondage. So you can sense the frustration here. The people are going in all the wrong directions, and for that they will be led away into bondage, and this will be their derision. And it will take that to bring them to their senses. So just wrapping up here, just what do we learn about sin? There's a few things we can pick up here from these verses. We can learn about particularly the deceitfulness of sin uh, and how sin both deceives our hearts and turns us into deceivers, right? Because the people were both deceived and became deceivers, right? It says they are full of deceit and they are full of lies. So how does that happen? How does this work in the life of, of people? How does sin deceive, deceive us? Uh, even as believers in Christ, how, how, does sin, how does sin deceive us? And there's really four... Four, I think, things we can kind of take away from this, right? The deception of sin. First, sin deceives us into thinking that our sin will go unnoticed, right? This is the dynamic of verse 2 when it says that, again, the Lord remembers all of this and their deeds are all around them. They are before the very face of God and yet they are not considering this in their hearts, right? God knows, God does remember and yet that's, they are not thinking that way, Right? Sin has deceived them into thinking that what they're doing is not going to be noticed or remembered by God. Uh, It's interesting. You go to Psalm 94. Just jot that down. Psalm 94, verses 1 to 11. It's actually the words in that psalm of a faithful Israelite speaking about the pagan nations afflicting them. So he had this faithful Israelite writing this psalm talking about how the nations think that God doesn't know, that God doesn't see, right? But in Hosea, it's God's chosen people who have adopted this way of thinking, right? So the psalmist is saying, Lord, like, when are you going to deal with these nations? They think they can do all this stuff and that you don't take notice. But when we get to Hosea, it's the people of Israel have this view (laughs) that the nations had, that God doesn't know. And once you believe that lie... Sin multiplies and escalates. And that is what we read about in the following verses, in verses 3 to 7. 
So the second thing we could see here is it, not only it deceives us into thinking that what we do goes unnoticed, but sin also deceives us into ignoring the cost, right? The price tag of what we do. So people don't realize what it is costing them and how it is affecting them and how it is aging them, right? This is Hosea 7, 8, right? Ephraim mixed himself with the nations in verse 9. Strangers devour his strength. It's like, and they're thinking, like down the road, how did we get so weak? It's like they, they don't think about the fact that when they sin, that it, there's a cost, cost involved. And he goes on to talk about, again, not just his strength, but in other ways, right? That it's, 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 it's costing them all along the way, and they're not really aware of it at the time because it's deception, right? That's what sin does. Sin also deceives us into blaspheming the character of God. This is verses 13 to 15. Sin deceived Israel into speaking lies against the Lord who would heal and restore them, right? But they were willing to blaspheme God's, the sweetest desires of God's character because God is saying, I would do this, I would do this, I would do this. And at the same time, God is saying, I would heal, I would restore. They're lying, right? Their, their, li- their life is a lie, right? Their life is full of hypocrisy. But they're... They're, they're trampling God's goodness, uh, devising evil against God. And in some cases, again, regarding the Israel's lovers, that, that, that imagery is that they're, they're giving credit to others for what God has done. So God had done things to care for them, but yet they're attributing that care to people that have nothing to do with it. And then lastly, we might say this, sin deceives us into thinking that we can sin without consequences, which is sort of tied back to the second one. But again, this is verse 16, right? I mean, and this is such, this is such a lie, right? I mean, that we can sin and get away with it. This goes all the way back to Genesis 3, right? You're not going to die. You can, you can eat that fruit. God has not said that. And yet God promises in verse 16, he will bring them down. He will chasten them. He will bring the net. Princes will die. There will be a recaptivity. Why? Because God is holy, but He's as holy as He is merciful. God is as holy as He is merciful. God is as righteous as He is patient. God is not just patient. He's not just loving. He's not just merciful. He's also holy and righteous and just. So sin will deceive you and it will turn you into a deceiver. It will blind you. And and this is just one example among many in the scriptures to teach us and to remind us, don't be fooled, right? Don't be hoodwinked. Sin will choke out the gospel work in your heart. And it's not just bad. Sin is not just bad. Sin is deceptive. It It is dangerous. It will kill you. So be on your guard. Guard your heart and watch out. Watch out for others, right? Because of the deceitfulness of sin, we're not only to examine our own hearts, but Scripture also tells us to help one another out in the race, right? And we'll just finish with this verse, Hebrews 3. Take care, verse 12 says, brethren, that there not be any, of, any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God, but encourage one another day after day as long as it is still called today so that none of you will be hardened by the, what? Deceitfulness of sin. So sin is, sin is deceptive. It turns us into deceivers. And so we need to be vigilant. We need to be always examining our life. We need to be looking at the words we say and the actions 
and making sure that we're closing that gap of hypocrisy, not widening that gap of hypocrisy. And in the process, and this is why the church is so important, the church matters because we need one another to help us identify the deception, right? We are all deceived at times, and one of the, one of the things that happens in that community of faith among believers is that we oversee one another. We, we look out for one another so that none of you, right, none of us will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Okay, so take that to heart in your own life. And again, even in the ministry you have and the relationships you have in the body, um, that, that, that sin is dis- deceitful and, and we need to, be, need to be on high alert. Okay, all right, we'll stop there and we'll pick up uh, next time. Uh, Hosea chapter 8 will be on the back half of the book. Thank you for your time.